We turn in God's Word this morning to the Gospel according to John, the 18th chapter. John chapter 18. This morning we continue our series of messages uh, over the course of the summer of those individuals in Scripture whose names uh, this year begin with the letter M. This morning we have uh, the opportunity to look at uh, God's Word in regards to a man by the name of Malchus. This evening we return to our study of God's Word in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 uh, as we look at uh, the articles of the Belgic Confession uh, that actually tie in very much with where we are this morning and uh, Jesus' glorious promise that comes to us out of this passage as well. And so uh, we'll look this evening at how is that possible beautiful promise of those you have gave me I have lost not one John chapter 18 when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire, but it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Go down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, that once a rooster crowed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for his blessing in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again come to that time in our service where we hear the (laughs) word proclaimed. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are receptive, Minds that are cleared of the worldly cares all around us. And Father, this morning that we could focus all of our energy and our love and affection upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. For for those, Father, here that may not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, we pray that today your spirit would work in their hearts. Father, that you would draw them to Christ. And Father, for the rest of us, that you would grow us in our faith, that when we leave here, Father, that we would be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. All this we pray in his name. Amen. And amen. Three things uh, to note about this man by the name of Melchus. One, he is a man in the garden. We meet him in no other places, in no other circumstances. This is the only place we encounter this man. Man in the garden. Secondly, he is a man who is injured. Perhaps that which stands out as his claim to fame is the fact that he had this ear cut off, but it's not so much that action as it is Christ that we need to focus on here. And then thirdly, he is a man who is referenced. I'm not sure how many times you have read of the denials of Peter. But uh, I found it rather interesting because I did not remember in the various accounts (coughs) excuse me, that Malchus is actually referenced once again when it comes to this third and final denial of Peter. And it's because of his association with Malchus that the individual comes to Peter. And challenges him as well. So those three things. A man in the garden. A man who was injured. And a man who was referenced. First of all a man in the garden. It's interesting. That all four gospel accounts. Tell us of this event. Every one of them. Tells us. About Peter. Striking. This man and injuring him. That's something to reflect on because not all four Gospels tell us everything about the life of Jesus. In fact, the, the actual events in the Gospels in which all four tell us about are not that very many. Now, oftentimes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they report similar events, but John is usually the one reporting other things. He's the one that that stands apart. 
But on this thing, all four Gospels tell us. So I want us to step back and, and at least ask the question, why is it that the Holy Spirit wanted this bit of information reported by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? For it is the Holy Spirit who is giving us this word. It is the Holy Spirit who is inspiring these words. It is the Holy Spirit who is making sure that each one of these four gospel writers includes this event. It would seem to me that at least one thing for us to, to step back from is to say, it happened. It is in agreement, and it is noteworthy to point out that, once again, this is not some positive highlight about the followers of Jesus. If you were going to write an account about your following of Jesus, this is probably not one of the events you're going to include because this is pretty shameful. It's pretty foolish to have been included. I think it reminds us again of the fact that this is indeed God's holy and inspired word. But that first, all four gospel accounts tell us about it. Secondly... It's interesting, when you read all four accounts about this particular night, none connects the three things of the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, and a garden. None of, us, of the accounts call this place the Garden of Gethsemane. One commentator points out the fact of that sort of a modern invention and kind of, kind of uh, our take of that which is happening. Oh, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As if this is some big place and maybe they have admission to the gardens. And maybe it's known for its beautiful flowers and it's known for its brick pathways. And as you come in, you got to get a ticket and then you get a little tram ride through it. And when we use that phrase, Garden of Gethsemane, I think a lot of people are thinking, ooh, this was probably well known. Actually, the way it is referenced in Scripture is that they go to the Mount of Olives, they go to a place called Gethsemane, an olive grove, and it appears within this olive grove is a very small, very small area that is called a garden. Some of you have uh, had the privilege of taking tours of, of Israel and you've probably gone to the Mount of Olives, you've probably gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. But nobody knows where this place is. A lot of that is just good tourist fodder. It's a good way to get our money. It's almost as if the way scripture actually deals with this place is it is almost a secretive location. That's why Jesus and his disciples are there. 
That's why the soldiers need Judas to lead them to the place. Because if it were the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll find him in the garden. They don't need Judas. They don't need to spend their 30 pieces of silver. They can go to the garden. But you see, if it's a small place, out-of-the-way place, that's hardly even known. Nobody even knows this thing exists. Well, now we have a, a different setting and a different scenario. Although it is rather interesting that it is John, and John alone, who references this as a garden. What is the point? The others tell us it's Gethsemane. John tells us it's the garden. Well, Arthur Pink, well-known commentator, writes the following. He says, there is a contrast going on, and that's why John points it out. It's a contrast of gardens between the Garden of Eden and this particular garden. The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. Here, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. Here, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. Here, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. Here, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict here was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. Here, Christ announced, of them whom thou gavest me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. Here, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. Here, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. Here, Christ, the last Adam, sought the Father. From Eden, Adam was driven. Here, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. Here, the sword was sheathed. It was in a garden that we meet this man. And it's only here in the Gospel of John that this man is identified. The others leave it very vague. John tells us that the man was a servant, a servant of the high priest, by the name of Melchus. Now, let, let's think about two reasons why that may be. Why is it that John gives us the name? How come Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't? Well, it might have to do with the date of writing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written... Sometime 50, 60 A.D. Peter is still alive. 
Peter has committed a chargeable offense against the Roman Empire. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke identify the attacker by name, now we have a chargeable offense for Rome to go after him. John's gospel is not written until the late 80s, early 90s. Most likely, Peter is already dead. There's no chargeable offense any longer. So that might be one explanation. Another explanation is, John knows this family well. Did you catch that when we kept going, there's this reference to the disciple, the disciple? John always talks about himself in the Gospel of John, not identifying himself by name, but always the disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, never using his personal name. When we come down to this section where they're at the trial with Annas and Caiaphas, you'll note there is a the disciple who knows the high priest family. That's perhaps the other reason it is identified. John knows who it is. John has met Melchus. So when Peter chops off his ear, John knows who that man is. He is the man in the garden. A servant come to arrest Christ. Secondly, he is a man who is injured. He is struck by Simon Peter. We are reminded, if you take your Bibles, uh, of his statement in Matthew chapter 16. Just go back to that a moment. Listen to Peter speak and, and see what he is doing here in the garden as a fulfillment of that. John chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter has it in mind that he will not let Jesus die. And we know this man, this impetuous speaker, this one who is speaking before he fully completes the thought of that which he says. I would trust there are probably a large number of us in this room, myself included, who can identify with such an individual. Doesn't always think about the consequences necessarily of one's speech or of how one puts something. That's Peter. Certainly we'd look at this and say, well, it's certainly noble of Peter, is it not? Lord, I'm not going to let you die. What courage, what loyalty, uh, what foolishness when we stop to think about it. Jesus even has to reference him as Satan. Now you'd think, well, you know, Peter probably learned his lesson. No, no, Peter, like you and I, takes multiple 
occurrences. Go to Matthew chapter 26. We're in the upper room. Same night as the event of the garden. Matthew chapter 26. Go to verse 31. They're already on their way. They're walking toward the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, the garden. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd. and The sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now within a matter of a few hours, here come soldiers. The disciples have but two weapons. We learn that from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, it's enough. Peter draws it, and he strikes Malchus. One wonders what the intent was. I doubt very seriously that Peter was simply aiming for the ear. That would be a strange thing to do. I've got a band of soldiers there, all with weapons. We are told that in some places this was a cohort... If it was the entire cohort, that's 600 men, plus temple guards and servants. Now, it's likely they didn't take the whole 600. It might be a detachment of that. We don't know. But they're armed, and they're armed to the teeth. Here's Peter, and he knows there's but one other little sword somewhere amongst one of the disciples, and he's just going to cut off an ear. Most likely, he's aiming for the head. Most likely, he was trying to slit Melchus's throat. Melchus, being perhaps a little more agile than the fisherman, who perhaps is not so good at cutting men's throats as he is at filleting fish, misses, strikes the ear. An attempt on the part of Peter to save Jesus from arrest and death. Seems like Peter not only speaks too quick, he listens too little. Jesus already said what's going to happen. Jesus already said what is going to occur. But Peter has stopped listening when Jesus said, I will strike the shepherd. Oh no, that's not going to happen on my watch. I'm responsible here. I'm going to step up to the plate and I'll protect. However, his action is followed by a rebuke by Jesus. Verse 11 of John chapter 18. Put your sword into its sheath. Put it away. Am I not to drink the cup? See, Peter, 
I said before, didn't listen very well. If he had, he would have heard Jesus praying in the garden about this cup. But you see, he had fallen asleep. So he didn't hear the whole prayer. May this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Peter, I've been praying about this. Peter, this, this is the cup. Put that thing away. Luke, the doctor, reports at this point in time that Jesus heals the man. He heals him by touching the ear. One almost gets the feeling then that perhaps the ear wasn't even fully severed in terms of cut off, holding in his hand, but more that it's dangling. And Jesus simply reaches out and touches the man's ear and it is restored. And that's where we have to stop and pause. What is going on? Why why is Jesus doing this? Why this healing? Well, two things. One, this is Christ's compassion for Melchus. I mean, we can't look past this. Why does Jesus heal Melchus? Because Christ has compassion upon him. The man's simply there doing his job. He's just one of those upon whom Jesus is later going to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're just doing their job. He's just showing up. He's the servant of the high priest. He has to be there. It doesn't say that Melchus took out a sword to strike Jesus. It doesn't even tell us if Melchus has a sword. He might have been a fully unarmed man who's just there doing his job, accompanying these soldiers, making sure the job got done and that the arrest took place and they're going to take him back to the high priest's place. Maybe he's just there as the guide to show them where they have to go when they get back to Jerusalem. Jesus has compassion. He's another one of the sheep who is without a shepherd. He's another one of those who has been listening to blind guides. And so, of course, Christ has compassion. But there's compassion here as well for this man for another reason. He is a high, the servant of the high priest, meaning he gets to accompany the high priest when he goes into the temple, but with a severed ear, with an injured ear. He is barred from this. He is not allowed to go to worship. He is not allowed to fulfill his job. He's out of work. Not only is he out of work, he can't worship. Christ has compassion upon this man. So when you think of Melchus, think of the man, yes, with the severed ear, but think of a man who experienced the compassion of Christ. But that compassion is also a demonstration of Christ's care for his disciples. What is most likely the aftermath if Jesus does nothing? Peter takes out his sword, severs the man's ear, or at least injures the man, and it's dangling there, blood starting to ooze out. What's going to happen? All sorts of weapons are going to start to be brandished. All sorts of swords are going to be 
slaying. And who's going to be killed? Peter? Others? But you see, Jesus' compassion upon Melchus is because it demonstrates his care. his disciples not going to lose a one never will I lose one of my disciples he's healed by Jesus knowing all look at that verse it's verse 4 18 verse 4 then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him knowing all think of what that all is it's the arrest, it's the beatings, it's the torture that's going to take place. It's the mocking, it's the ridicule, it's the cross, it's the darkness, it's the forsakenness by his father. He knows all that is going to happen. And he healed this man. He doesn't come at it with a, well, you're a part of this group? I know what you guys are going to do. Sit there with your dangled ear. Be out of work. You deserve it for what you're going to do to me. No. Jesus, knowing all, reaches out with that compassion and care. Jesus, knowing all that it, these disciples who he is seeking to protect here in the garden are soon going to lead and leave, and this disciple who is involved in this act is going to be denying him within three, three times before that rooster crows. Jesus, knowing all. Do you notice as you read John chapter 18, there is no attempt to flee? Look at what happens. The soldiers come forward. Jesus meets them. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. What was the response? What happened to that, that cohort of soldiers? That entourage that has come, it says they drew back and fell to the ground. You notice there is no run. What a perfect opportunity to get away from all of this. Got a bunch of soldiers down, awestruck. They have no clue what's going on. Run. Get out of here. Flee. Jesus, knowing all, heals Melchus. Knowing that even this is not going to prevent the cross. Indeed, even this is going to bring him to the cup of wrath of his father. 
this story, my friends, is such an example of grace. Such an example of the obedience of Christ. Such an example of his determined love for you and I. For truly it could be said, he heals Malchus for you, for me. But he also becomes a man who is referenced by a relative. John chapter 18, verses 25 and 26. Some relative of Malchus seeing Peter at a campfire, warming himself. Do you notice how often that got repeated? It's at there at the end of 18. Peter also was with him, standing and warming himself. 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Meanwhile, what's going on? Jesus is being mocked. Jesus is being ridiculed. Jesus is on trial. Nobody cares about Jesus. But Peter, seems to be a little closer to the campfire. It's getting a little cold. The only one that's being thought of by Peter is Peter. He's not really given any thought to Jesus at this point. Because his major draw is to warm himself. And you see, it's the warming of himself that draws him in, isn't it, to the light. And in the light, a relative of the man that Peter injured. A relative who was also in the garden. In the campfire light looks, hey, I saw you. Well, of course, Peter, Peter's kind of a known entity now, right? He's the guy who took out the sword and tried to defend. He's the guy who injured my relative. You don't forget that face. You don't forget that clothing. You don't forget that accent. At the campfire, aren't you? No. No, he denies it. This then becomes the third denial, and we are told that immediately after this, the rooster crows. That which Jesus has referenced, that which Jesus said, yeah, you're going to stand up for me, right. You're going to deny me three times, and when you hear that rooster crow, you will remember. Luke records for us in chapter 22, verse 61, that as the rooster is crowing, Jesus looks at Peter. And the next response of Peter, interestingly enough, that John does not report, but the other gospel writers do, is that he went out and wept bitterly. Repentance. Tears of repentance, tears of remorse, tears of sorrow. Is Jesus going to lose him? There is not one that I am going to lose of my disciples. Now we might think, 
that Jesus was referencing the physical disciples, but he isn't. He's referencing his spiritual followers. Because there's going to be a disciple. It's going to end up at the bottom of a ravine. But that's not who Jesus was speaking of. He was speaking of his spiritual followers. I will not lose one. But what about Peter? He denied three times. I told you John does not record the fact that Peter wept bitterly. No, John records for us instead the beautiful aftermath of chapter 21. Where Christ again comes to Peter, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? But very little is said of these last words that Jesus utters to Peter. It's John 21 verse 19. Follow me. Oh, what love. Oh, what grace. For even this denier of Christ, for even this one who thought more of standing and warming himself than he did of Christ, this one who wanted to disassociate himself from Christ, follow. you see he will not lose one and oh the marvelous grace it took for Peter oh no oh the marvelous grace it took for you and for me Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. What a glorious reminder in this man, the name of Melchus, of the compassion of Christ, the love of Christ, of the grace of Christ. In his name, we give you thanks. And God's people say, Amen.